Please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This will be our New Testament reading before we go to Micah 2, our sermon text. Second Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. So we think about those people who would not endure sound teaching, but had itching ears. We're going to see how there really is nothing new under the sun. So we turn back now to Micah 2 and hear how this preacher experienced much the same in his own day. Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them. And houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go! For this is no place to rest. 
because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure you've seen uh, pictures or maybe even little statues um, of the three monkeys where one is covering his ears, one is covering his eyes, and one is covering his mouth. Uh, There are even uh, standard uh, emojis of these three monkeys. You can look that up sometime. Um, What I didn't know until recently is that those symbols are actually uh, pretty old, uh, originating uh, in Japan as early as the 1600s. And apparently they originated from uh, out of the, the kind of philosophy and ethics of Confucianism. Uh, supposedly uh, representing a, a virtuous life where a person is committed to seeing and hearing and speaking, nothing improper, um, which we commonly sum up in English as see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Uh, except that these days, people generally use those symbols uh, and those phrases and those monkeys in sort of a sarcastic, kind of ironic way. Uh, To many people, see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil has more to do with ignoring and covering up uh, evil than it has to do with um, living an upright life. Sort of idea that I I didn't see anything, I didn't hear anything, I'm not going to say anything, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to talk about it, let's all just pretend that it didn't happen. And that, I think, is a, a pretty good illustration for the kind of attitude that The prophet Micah is confronting here in Micah chapter 2 as he rebukes uh, Jerusalem's rich and powerful, Judah's rich and powerful for their very self-centered approach to life, their their covetous, greedy, power-drunk abuse of their position. And more than that, uh, the way that when God's prophet comes to point that out to them and to call them to repentance, say, you need to change... They simply don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. We see no evil in our lives. We don't want to hear you speak any evil about us. And if you do, we're going to close our ears to it and pick some other prophet who will tell us what we want to hear instead. So let's look at this chapter 2 in three parts this morning. First is going to be turned tables, verses 1 to 5. Second is going to be itching ears, verses 6 to 11. And then third, a rescued remnant, verses 12 to 13. All right, so Micah begins in verse 1 with a declaration of woe. A woe is a very serious uh, rebuke and kind of lament and uh, proclamation of judgment against, um, in this case, some very particular sins that some of the people in Judah have been committing against others who are kind of under their influence and in their, in their sphere of influence. Um, 
as one writer puts it, uh, this is a, it's, a, it's a might makes right mentality, where at night, it says they come up with schemes of how to basically rob from others, how to use um, their wealth to build their wealth in underhanded ways at other people's expense. And then in the morning, they go out and do it. And why? Well, be, because we can. Because we can. We have the power, and so we're just going to do what we want and take what we want to take. Um, if you want an illustration of what that kind of thing looks like in the history of Israel, uh, a good example is the history of, of King Ahab and Naboth's vineyard in the book of Second Kings, uh, where Ahab sees this vineyard that belongs to this man Naboth, and he thinks, well, what a great vineyard. I'm the king, so I'm going to see if I can, I can buy that off of him, and surely he'll sell it to me, but Naboth is not selling. He says, I don't want to sell this land. And so what does Ahab's wife Jezebel do? Well, she arranges for Naboth uh, to be brought up on uh, kind of trumped up false charges and executed so that Ahab can just confiscate that land, take what he wants. You remember what she asks him, asks her husband, do you now govern Israel? In other words, like, are you the king or not? You should be able to just take what you want. Now, Uh, These people in chapter 2 are not kings, but they are acting with the spirit of Ahab in their own little spheres of influence, um, wielding their power for selfish gain rather than for the good of the people under their leadership, which is what Israelite leaders are supposed to do. They're supposed to use the the power and the wealth entrusted to them for the good of the people uh, that they oversee or uh, that they have influence over. And so like like Ahab... um, they're doing more here than just stealing. That's part of it. I mean, there's just blatantly breaking the Eighth Commandment, uh, and that's bad enough. But there's more than that when you think about what the land means for Israelites. Think about why wouldn't Naboth sell his land to Ahab? Well, it's because it, that was his family's inheritance in the promised land. God had given his family that land as part of his as part of God's covenant commitment to Israel, it represented their share in that spiritual reality of God's covenant relationship with his people. And so Ahab was doing more than just stealing property from Naboth. He was violating that sacred covenantal symbolism of the land as God's special gift to those people. And so um, rather than defending and, and living out their covenantal calling as God's holy people, living in God's holy land, these rich and powerful people in Judah were, were profaning that land and that covenant by stealing from the very people that they should have been defending and um, leading in a self-giving kind of service to the Lord and to one another. Now, <clears throat> in verse 2, um, I want you to notice particularly the relationship between desire and action. Desire and action. What's in their hearts related to what they go out and do? Micah says they covet fields and seize them. And houses, basically, you can fill in, they covet the houses too and take them away. All of this then starts not with the Eighth Commandment. It starts with the Tenth Commandment. It starts with you shall not covet. It starts with, in other words, their desire. It starts with what's in their hearts starts with the question, what do you want? What do you want the most? Think about James later in the New Testament who says, well, what causes quarrels and fights? 
among you, and he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Uh, in the chapter before that, James says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Each person, James 1, is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So you see, it's, it's easy for us to kind of um, look at these rich and powerful people in, Ju- in Judah in Micah's day and, sa- and say, wow, look at those terrible people. They were pretty bad, um, throwing their weight around, these bullies, just taking what they wanted uh, from people who couldn't do anything about it. And that's not false, that's, that's, that's true, but, um, but of course for many people, and we should include ourselves in this, <clears throat> there are many flagrant sins that uh, the only reason we don't commit them is because we don't have the opportunity the way maybe other people do. It's easy to critique the rich and powerful for the sins of the rich and powerful when you're not rich and powerful. Um, when you're, when you're not rich, you don't have very much power. But, but this is where Micah's rebukes should really come home to us here. Uh, when he points out that all of this starts in their hearts. It starts with their desires. They covet the fields and houses first. That's where it all begins. That inward, sinful, and selfish desire. And that desire only becomes externalized in this dramatic kind of public way. Because they, unlike the people that they oppress, happen to have the, the means, the, the resources, the position in life to act on it. Um, to put it in terms of a, of, a, of a crime novel, you know, detectives are always talking about means, motive, and opportunity, right? Well, just because we don't share the means and the opportunity for certain sins doesn't mean that we don't share the motive. And it's that motive that the Lord is often the, the most concerned with, really, and what the law of God addresses so directly in that Tenth Commandment that is all about what's in your heart. Uh, when, our, when our children struggle a little bit with uh, hoarding their toys, you know, being very protective, not wanting anybody else to play with their stuff, because it's mine. Um, I really appreciate Annie has, has taken to remind, reminding them, to telling them, don't be a dragon. You're, you're being a dragon. And, and that really communicates to them. They understand it because they know what dragons do. What do dragons do? They gather, they hoard whatever they can for themselves, and they, they brood over it. Think about Eustace and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and how he goes into the dragon's cave and he sees the dragon's uh, lair and, and hoard of gold. And what happens in the morning, he wakes up and realizes he is transformed into a dragon. We all need to watch out for that kind of dragon heart in ourselves that led to these dragon-like actions when these people had the opportunity to do it. Um, I think we can go one step further in application here before we move on and, and just point out, this kind of goes without saying, but a lot of things that go without saying don't really go without saying. This is just a reminder, a warning to all of us that when we have influence over others, including some kind of economic, financial influence of one kind or another over other people because of the providential position in life God has given to us, 
as Christians, we all need to be on guard against the temptation that's always going to be present to use that position to benefit ourselves unjustly just because we can get away with it. Christians need to strive for the sake of the honor of Christ and the integrity of our own profession of faith. We need to strive to be exemplary in our integrity in our financial and legal doings with others, especially those who are vulnerable, those who are in some sense dependent upon us or in a weaker position relative to us. And, of course, just saying, well, I I didn't do anything illegal um, isn't enough because we all know there are plenty of ways within the law um, to, of the, the law of the state to exploit and harm people in ways that are contrary to the law of God. And so we want to let this prophecy of Micah uh, guide us and be a warning to all of us against that, that greedy, acquisitive, grasping spirit that can so easily start to just twist our thinking and lead us to justify ourselves in doing things that simply are not just in the eyes of God. So watch out for that. Okay, we want to move on now and see what is the Lord going to do in response? What is the Lord going to do in response? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family, I am devising disaster. What these people are going to get is, in a sense, a taste of their own medicine. That's what's going to happen here. It's helpful to to realize that the word wickedness in verse 1 um, is, is very similar in Hebrew, almost identical to the Hebrew word used for disaster in verse 3. The term wickedness and the term disaster. Um, and so in, there's a sense where God's not saying he's doing moral evil. There's a, in Hebrew, there's a close relationship between the idea of moral evil and the idea of just bad things that happen to us. Um, like a natural disaster, that would be considered an evil, right? We can, evil has that broader meaning. And so these things are being... Uh, set parallel here, um, uh, the Lord is saying, basically, what you have planned against others, I am now planning against you. Uh, and in retribution, um, this, this just judgment against um, their wickedness. So the Lord is going to bring these just harmful consequences against the oppressors where the punishment is going to fit the crime. That's the point. So the Lord is going to see that they lose their fields, that they lose their portion of the land. And that's exactly what's going to happen, of course, when the Assyrians come through and overrun everything in Judah uh, leading up to the siege of Jerusalem. Um, and it will ultimately happen in a more, uh, more lasting way a um, century later in the Babylonian exile, although that's not immediately in view at this time. Okay, now, um, in, in response to this prophecy then, how do these kind of movers and shakers in Judah react? Right, so the, these rich and powerful people who have lots of influence, they, they hear Micah preaching, and what we'd like to see, we, we'd like to see them doing something like, like the king of Nineveh, right? Or they sit down in sackcloth and ashes and they repent. We say, oh no, look what we've done. Uh, we're sorry, we, we want to be different, and Lord, have mercy on us. But uh, unlike Nineveh, no, what these people say is, Micah, just, just sit down and be quiet. Nobody wants to hear that kind of preaching. Nobody is going to go to your church, Micah. Speak no evil, Micah, like you've been doing 
Of course, it doesn't matter to them that what he's been saying is true. Truth doesn't enter into it. What matters to them is we just don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. Come on, man. What a tragedy it is that in response to the word of God, God's people simply block it out. They attempt to silence it. You don't want to hear it. And the Lord responds to them in verse 7. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? A reminder that even a hard message of rebuke from the Lord is something that God's people should treasure. The father in Proverbs, listen, my son, to my, to my instruction, my discipline. God's people should be saying, Lord, speak to us. Speak to us anything, whatever it is, whatever you want to say, no matter how hard, no matter how burdensome, no matter how convicting, we want to hear it because it's the word of our God. That ought to be our attitude towards God's word. But instead, these people are putting their hands over their ears like those monkeys, and they're putting their hands over the mouth of God's prophet, and and they're continuing just to carry out with impunity the same crimes of theft and oppression, um, not just against unsuspecting men, verse 8, but against women and children, verse 9, kind of intensifying this sense of injustice against these vulnerable people. And you notice, again, it's not just stuff that they're taking away. It's not just about wealth changing hands. It's about what God calls my splendor. The wealth of Israel, including their land and everything that's produced by their land, uh, is God's gracious covenantal gift to them. It represents that whole relationship between God and his people and the the blessing of having communion with God together. And that's what these people are violating. It's a very serious spiritual thing. um, The Lord Jesus faced a very similar problem to Micah during his ministry. People didn't want to hear what Jesus had to say either. Uh, much of the time. And so rather than listening to his warnings and his promises, rather than heeding Jesus's call to repentance and the ways that he was correcting their misunderstandings of God's law and God's ways, what did they do? They made it their mission to silence Jesus and silence him. They did very, very temporarily in the crucifixion. I think of the time that Jesus says, this generation, you guys are like children in the marketplace. And they're singing a song and it goes, we, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. And then we sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Just petty. Always wanting Jesus, always wanting God's messenger to play by their rules. Jesus, you need to play by our rules. You need to conform to our expectations. You need to tell us what we want to hear. You need to march to the beat of our drum. And that's how so many people approach God. And that's how all of us are really tempted to approach him. Because what we want in our sin is for God just to justify us the way we are. We just want him to accept our choices, our desires, our outlook on life, and just put his stamp of approval on it. I think that's the reason a lot of people go to church. Because... They have their life the way they like it, and they go to church so that then they can feel like God has blessed that way of life. But see, when God's word says no to us, 
When God's word says no to us and calls us to change in some way, that's when we start to get our hackles up. And, and we can be tempted just to shut our ears and say, I don't want to hear that. That's not why I came here this morning. One should not preach of such things. That's certainly um, the attitude that people around us outside the church are increasingly taking towards the church, towards the word of God in our present kind of cultural moment. Because many of the most influential voices in our culture want you to buy into the notion that simply to say what God's word says about all kinds of topics, that that is wrong, that that is cruel, that it's insensitive, that it's backwards, it's unreasonable, and that it's even evil. That is what we are up against. As the whole world, it feels like sometimes, is saying, you should not preach about such things. We don't want to hear it. And so our task is like Micah, not to succumb to that pressure to stop speaking the truth. That pressure just to keep God's word to ourselves. You know, uh, the culture at large is generally fine with you know, freedom to believe whatever you want to believe, believe as long as you keep it to yourself. But we must not be silent as God's people because that's not our mission. We must speak the word, the message that Christ has entrusted to us, even when the voices around us are shouting very loudly, do not preach. One should not preach of such things. Because instead, see, what people want, what people want is a comfortable message. People want what is comfortable. That's the way we live a lot of our lives, just trying to find a comfort zone where we feel at kind of at rest. We naturally want to be affirmed. We want for people to tell us that we're okay and to reinforce our desires, reinforce our interests. And what a rebuke it is then in verse 11 when the Lord says, if a man should go about in utter wind and lie, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink, well, he'd be the preacher for this people. So it shows how, how shallow is their desire to be, just affirmed in their pleasure-seeking approach to life. Going through life living just for their own comfort and ease and pleasure. You know, earlier we read from Second Timothy chapter 4, right? Where Paul tells Timothy, listen, Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, understand what that means? Ears are just itching. They want somebody to scratch it. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And, and this is not just happening out in the culture at large. Though know, people wanting to, to squat, people who want to squash the church's witness uh, to the whole counsel of God. Paul is talking there about something that, that happens regularly inside the church. Um, as it happened here inside the covenant community in Micah's day. People silencing the pure proclamation of the word of God and substituting for it preachers and teachers who will tell them what they want to hear and who will appeal to and who will affirm what they already believe and what they already want instead of challenging, challenging them with their need to change, to be more conformed to the image of Christ and to put sin to death and live more and more a God-word life. It's so interesting, though, um, this is something that's common in Micah, for there just to be these rapid 
changes in tone. Or one moment it's judgment, but then all of a sudden there's a rapid shift to a contrasting theme. In the last two verses of this chapter, uh, that's what's happening. After all of this rebuke of all of the oppressors and the troublemakers who are, who are largely responsible for bringing against Judah the judgment that's coming in the form of the Assyrian invasion... Micah describes another group of people within Israel, within Judah, who have a very different kind of relationship to the Lord. We have to understand that the people of Judah were not all the same in Micah's day, just as people in churches around America are not all the, and the world are not all the same today. The people that Micah rebukes in the first part of the chapter were only some of the people of Judah, right? In verse 12, though, Micah turns and he starts talking about what he calls this remnant. This remnant. Uh, in, in verse 10, he's just said that the oppressive rich are going to have to leave. They're going to experience a grievous destruction. But there's still going to be, verse 12, an assembly of the true people of God. God is going to do what it takes to preserve that assembly of his people. And they're, they're not going to be completely scattered. The Lord is always going to have a community of the people that belong to him. The Lord is going to assemble them personally. He's going to do it himself. And he's going to be their shepherd. And he's going to gather them into his sheepfold. And that, that idea of God himself gathering his people is so precious. It's like Jesus says, John 10, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. One shepherd, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus in gathering his people. But he's not only going to gather them, it goes on. He's also going to lead them. And verse 13 is kind of intriguing. At first it sounds like bad news, because it's saying there's going to be a breach in the wall of Jerusalem. That can't be good. Except you realize what's happening here is a, is a kind of reversal of what you'd ordinarily think of a breach in the wall, meaning... Um, the breach is not where the enemy is streaming in. What's happening through this breach? No, the Lord is leading the faithful remnant in streaming out through this breach. And not out into exile, but out into victory, out on the offensive. Um, there's more than one writer agrees that we should be thinking here about the city of Jerusalem after Sennacherib's army was destroyed after that siege was overcome supernaturally by God. And one of them points us very particularly to 2 Kings uh, chapter 19, verse 31, in that whole Sennacherib story, where in that case it's the prophet Isaiah, who um, was contemporary of Micah. They overlapped. Their ministries were very similar in many ways. Isaiah was prophesying at that same time in history, and he says basically Jerusalem is going to survive this siege. Sennacherib's not going to win the war. And listen to what Isaiah says there in 2 Kings. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah, he says, shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. This is what the Lord is going to do. He's going to preserve and gather and also lead powerfully a remnant who are going to be faithful to him and who are going to follow him. See, the Lord is their ultimate king. Verse 13 here. And he is the one who's going to preserve them and save them and lead them out victorious. And all this reminds me very much 
Over does you too of Revelation 19, that wonderful image where it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And after describing Jesus in more detail there, it goes on, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The Lord Jesus then is our leader, our king, And we are riding out to battle behind him. What an inspiring picture of the Christian life. Is that the way you think about your Christian life when you get up in the morning? I'm riding on a white horse behind the Lord Jesus in victorious um, pursuit of the battle that he is winning. Think about who this Jesus is, Christ who suffered and died for our sins. But he did not remain dead, but he rode forth, as it were, in victory from the tomb, from that ultimate consequence of sin, that ultimate enemy, that last enemy to destroy. He burst through and is leading us with him in victory over death. Leading us, 2 Corinthians 2 says, in triumphal procession. And through us, it goes on, he's spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You know, this Jesus who leads us, we should also realize is very much unlike, very much unlike the leaders that Micah rebukes at the beginning of this chapter. That's one of the most important things to see here about the Lord Jesus. See, these people were characterized by by the way they oppressed and robbed the people that they should have been helping and caring for. But you know, as Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so now as we follow that Lord Jesus... In this triumphal procession, this victorious streaming through the walls, victory. What does he want from us? What does he want from us? Well, I'll tell you one thing. Instead of that see no evil attitude where we shut our eyes to hard things, the Lord Jesus wants us to see clearly. He wants us to see our sin clearly. He wants us to confess it, to bring it into the light and trust him. When we do that, he will forgive us and he will cleanse us instead of putting us to shame. And he wants us not just to see our sin clearly. He wants us to see the gospel clearly. He wants us to see him clearly as the solution, the sacrifice for those sins. And as we go about living in a world that that doesn't want to hear what he has to say, stopping its ears... Like those people, you remember who stoned Stephen and it says they stopped their ears and rushed at him because they were so angry at what he was saying. Well, we're to make sure that, first of all, that we are listening. That we are not hardening our hearts, stopping our ears. That we are hearing the Lord Jesus in his word. But then we also have to make sure that we're not being silent. Because we have a message of life and hope for the world. The Lord Jesus is at our head. He's breaking through. He's leading us in victory. And so he is calling us together this morning to see the truth, to hear the truth, and to speak the truth.
by his grace. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you see us in all of our evil. And yet even though you see it, you have not treated us the way our sins deserve. Instead, you've provided a way of rescue and salvation through the Lord Jesus, who gave himself, rather than seeking um, to enrich and um, just advance himself and keep himself comfortable, Lord, he laid his life down so that we, through his poverty, might become rich, so we might have that forgiveness of sins and hope of an eternal inheritance in him you've given us in the gospel. We're so thankful for the Lord Jesus. We're so thankful that you are faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from our sin. We pray that you would please give us boldness in a world that doesn't want to hear the message that you've entrusted to your church. Lord, help us be faithful to keep speaking so that that faithful remnant you are gathering might hear it, might embrace it, might believe it, might join with us in that triumphal procession that you are leading us in from here towards heaven. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.